The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, join with me now as we have the privilege to study God's Word together to hear Him speak, because that is His promise. God is a living God. The Lord Jesus reigns on high. He speaks through His Holy Spirit as He utilizes Scripture, His Word, to address the hearts and the minds and the conscience of every person made in His image. And I would invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 1. And we've had the really the great joy of embarking on the book of Revelation. And we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 in just a second there. There's some notes in the bulletin if you want to use those and follow along as we go. And as I said last week, same was true this week. Just each week so far I've had saints share with me, contact me, and let me know that they're reading the book of Revelation. They are being blessed, encouraged, learning. Although for some, actually maybe many, it's a challenge, and it is. Revelation's a challenging book, and we're looking at it one section at a time, asking God to open our hearts and our minds. But before we look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, just want to set a little context by way of reminder, especially for those who haven't been with us. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of this book. It's really, literally, the revelation is the apocalypsis, the unveiling of Jesus Christ in all His glory, His plan for the church, and also as the Lord of history and how history is going to unfold and how history is going to culminate according to God's plan. And Jesus is the main character. It's all about Christ. It's a look to the future, really, and also what's going on in the church age right now through the lens of historic churches that existed in John the Apostle's day. John the Apostle wrote this inspired book at the end of his life sometime in the 90s, maybe 95 A.D., as he was living in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey today. He had been a pastor there for almost 40 years, probably was a part of several of those church plants there. He probably pastored at least the church of Ephesus, which is mentioned in chapter 2, and then he was arrested for being a Christian and for preaching Christ and was taken off, carted off to a remote penal colony, which was a big rock in the middle of the sea called Patmos, and that's where John was when he had this vision of Jesus Christ and was commanded to write this book. So that's John writing Revelation to those churches in his day, but also to the churches of all ages. Uh, God gives a special blessing in Revelation. We want to highlight it again because it is so important. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. As so many Christians neglect the book of Revelation, fail to read it for whatever reason, when God said you should be reading this book of all books in the New Testament because the only book in the Bible that comes with a blessing for doing so. Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is the one who reads. That's a promise from God. Not just read it. He goes on. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear. That means hear it and understand it. You're learning carefully what it says. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed or obey the things which are written in it. So there's the blessing for those who read Revelation, those who study it and understand it, and also apply it to their life. God guarantees a blessing. And so just for me already, we're only in chapter 2, I have been blessed in a new way and in a fresh way by having to go back to Revelation again and study it and pray about it and get deep into the Scriptures and let the Scriptures just 
flood my mind with biblical truth as God communes and ministers to me. And I, I trust that's happening to you as you go through this book of Revelation. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 2 now, verses 8 through 11, just to bring you up to speed. Oh, one other thing before we get to chapter 2. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19 is God's outline for this book. That will really help you in your study of Revelation because this is a divine outline. Revelation can be divided into three chunks. Uh, Verse 19 says, Jesus says to John the Apostle, Write therefore the things which you have seen, the things that are past, what you just saw in chapter 1, that vision. So that's point number one in the outline. Chapter 1, the things which you have seen. The second point in Revelation, in the big outline, comes in the middle of verse 19. Write down the things which you have seen and also the things that are, the things which are existing right now. What was present tense ongoing in John's day when Jesus said this? was the churches. Seven in particular in Asia Minor, the church age, present tense, ongoing. And that's exactly what is addressed in chapters 2 and 3. So that's point number two. So it's things past, things present, these seven churches and their messages to churches of all time, and that's chapters 2 and 3. And then the last part of the book of Revelation is at the end of verse 19. And also write down the things which shall take place after these things. He's very technical and very specific. So point number three is write down all this future stuff I'm about to unveil to you. And that really starts in chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 22. And that's all future. It has not happened yet. This didn't happen in 70 A.D. It hasn't happened in church history. The content of chapter 4 through 22 is all future. It is prophetic. It's how history ends according to God's plan. So right now we are in point number two in the grand scheme of things, and that's chapters 2 and 3 as... Jesus addresses the churches of John's day. So let's go ahead and look at those. There are seven churches in my Bible, my red-letter Bible. All the letters in chapter 2 and 3 are red because that means Jesus is the one speaking directly in both chapter 2 and 3. It is the Lord Jesus Christ addressing directly His churches. These seven churches were probably started by the Apostle Paul and under his ministry and influence because Paul took several missionary journeys into the area of Ephesus. The book of Acts tells us Paul spent three years in the book of, I mean, in the area of Asia Minor, preaching, he started a church called Ephesus. There, he was in Ephesus and in the surrounding area for three plus years. It says that uh, because of Paul's preaching, everyone, the word of God went everywhere, all throughout Asia. And no doubt, these seven churches were a byproduct of Paul's faithful preaching ministry. And then when he died, John uh, the apostle came and really took over the ministry of the apostle Paul in these areas of. Asia Minor, and Jesus selects seven churches. There were probably way more churches than that in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. But for whatever God's reason, and it was out of His wisdom, that He chose seven He wanted to highlight. So He did. And John was probably familiar with all seven of these churches. Uh, by the way, geographically, these seven churches, starting with Ephesus, which is Genesis, or, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it starts there. And then the next church that is addressed after that in verse 8 is the church at Smyrna. And then the next church is Pergamum, verse 12, Thyatira. If you follow the seven churches and how they're addressed, it's logical. There's a logical order in how Jesus addressed them, starting with Ephesus. Interestingly enough, each of these cities is 40 miles away from the other. That's kind of interesting. Uh, Also, we know historically that all seven of these churches, they kind of make a circle as Jesus addresses them. And they were actually on a main postal route of communication during that time. 
which is significant. So they had access. And that's why every one of these letters is addressed with, to the messenger, write this. And these were human messengers, not angels. These were human messengers. But these messages were being taken to these seven churches. Last week we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And that was the church at Ephesus. And the introduction in Revelation chapter 1 said we would be blessed if we heed what we learn. So we tried to learn something about the church of Ephesus last week. There are practical lessons. Revelation is a practical book. It is relevant. It is pertinent. It should affect and change our life individually and also corporately as a church. We know that from last week looking at Ephesus. Here are the practical lessons we could take from Ephesus last week. It was a church that existed for 40 years. It was a hard-working church. Jesus commended their toil in the Lord. So they weren't sloughing. They were hard-working Christians. Uh, Jesus commended their endurance because they persevered in their hard work under difficult circumstances for 40 years. So they're commended for that. Some churches fizzle out in less time. So hard-working, they endured and had perseverance. They were also a discerning church, spiritually discerning. They tested teaching. They would not tolerate false teaching or immorality. That was a strength, spiritual discernment. So they were theologically sound and actually morally pure. That isn't true of all churches, and we're going to see that in some of these that we're going to see in Ephesus. True churches that were filled with all kinds of sexual immorality. That Ephesus didn't have that problem. And finally, it was a church that practiced faithfully church discipline. Not only would they be discerning and expose false teaching, they would deal with it, which was courageous. But they had their faults, and it was a huge one, and Jesus rebuked them for that. They, they left their first love. They left their greatest priority. They left their focus of, when, of how they started. And that was single-minded devotion to God as Savior and to the saints that were in their midst and to lost souls around them. They grew a little cold in terms of their heart. And that's what theological knowledge can do. Paul told us that in Corinthians. Theological knowledge, not dealt with in the proper way, puffs up. You become somewhat... Arrogant, prideful, condescending, looking down your nose on people who don't have all the answers. They're not as theologically astute as you or me. And that was the problem of the Ephesians and their theological stuffiness. So they were theologically sound and they were morally pure, but they were puffed up and cold. Now those are lessons we can learn from, can't they? I know I can. Praise God. So we ask the Holy Spirit to help us individually to be like Ephesus where they were strong and to avoid where they are, were weak and we can learn from their mistakes. Let's go ahead to the next church and that's uh, the church at Smyrna, verses 8 through 11. Follow as I read. Jesus continues to talk and address the apostle and the messenger of that church and he says this to the church at Smyrna. And to the, and to the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead... And has come to life says this, I know your tribulation, even your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Stop being afraid of what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison in order that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Keep being faithful until the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt.
by the second death. It's been said that uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christians early on were being killed by those who hated them. And that's been going on all throughout church history for 2,000 years. People who hate Christ eventually take out their hatred on Christians in the church. And that was going on since Christ started His church. We know that. The 11 out of the 12 apostles were murdered because of their faith, as was the Apostle Paul. People have been doing that all throughout history, trying to kill Christians and snuff out religion and snuff out Christianity. The interesting thing is, and you can see this all throughout history, wherever a nation, a tyrant, has pursued Christianity, hated it, and tried to snuff it out with persecution, what happened is that church just grew stronger wherever that oppression was happening. That's an amazing lesson. That wherever there is strong persecution, there you typically find a courageous, deep, thriving, holy, pure church. It's like God is making that church flex its muscles, purifying it. This was true of the church at Smyrna. Let's go ahead and look at it. Four points that I have there about Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church, unlike any of the other seven churches mentioned. We're going to see that. And it is because of the area in which they live. It's noteworthy that out of these seven churches, Jesus rebukes five of them for compromise, for sin. Two churches do not get rebuked for any shortcomings. One of those two is Smyrna. It didn't get rebuked by Christ. There was nothing that he could see on a corporate level that demanded rebuke. Philadelphia is the other church that didn't get rebuked. All the other ones had glaring weaknesses. Smyrna did not, and that is due really to its enduring suffering and persecution. That's what suffering and persecution will do. It will purify a church. So we'll see that in Smyrna. So let's go ahead and look at it. Four points. The first point, verse 8, is the destination. That is the church at Smyrna. The destination, every one of these seven letters starts with that heading, a specific destination of the city and the church in that city that Jesus is addressing these words. Just a few things about Smyrna, the city, historically, and even today. Today it's called Izmir. I-Z-M-I-R. It exists. It's a thriving city. Probably got more people today than it did back then 2,000 years ago. In the metro area of Izmir there in Turkey, it's got over 3 million people today. Just, it's a thriving, bustling, beautiful city from what I could see on the Internet anyway. But historically, the city of Smyrna was 40 miles north of Ephesus on that postal route. It was by the harbor. Or the, I mean, it was by the sea, so it had its own harbor uh, that made it a hopping place for commercial exchange with other places. Uh, it has a long history. Some significant things But in about 200 B.C. They made it, Smyrna made an alliance with Rome and Rome was dominating the world at that time. They made an allegiance to Rome. Rome was a pagan nation. That's significant. So in 195 B.C., Smyrna built a temple honoring Rome, the pagan nation, showing allegiance to it. That temple stood for a long time. Not only did it have a temple honoring Rome, over the years they built several other temples where they would actually worship false gods. They had a temple to Nemesis, 
one of the Greek gods. They had a temple to Zeus, a temple to Apollo, a temple to Asclepius, and a, and a, and a temple to Aphrodite. Right down the street. One next to the other. So this was a pagan city for the most part that God was going to make inroads to with the light of the gospel and change it. And he did. Smyrna is also historically known as a city of learning. They had a library there for science and medicine. Supposedly Homer was born there. Homer was born in Smyrna. That is if Homer existed, if he was a real person. There's a question about that. Also significant for our lesson today is that there is a strong influential, thriving Jewish population, a pocket of Jews living in Smyrna. Also, emperor, emperor worship was thriving. And it, it reached its peak of thriving at this time when Jesus wrote this letter to Smyrna because the Roman emperor at the time was Domitian. And he was a tyrant. He was a megalomaniac. He was vicious. He hated Christians. He hated the gospel. He hated Jesus. He had a lot of ignorance, but he was vitriolic, and he took he acted out on that hatred. He demanded that he actually he made a law that everybody under his domain call him Lord and God. So you had to profess that at certain times. You had to say that Domitian was Caesar is Lord and God. Not only that, you had to worship him with by lighting incense to him publicly at certain times. For a Christian to do that, that would be blasphemous. That's idolatry. They refused to do that if you're a true believer, right? And so that was going to get them in trouble. And that's why they were such a persecuted and suffering church at this time because it was Domitian who was reigning. He was ruling. Domitian was the one that had John the, the Apostle arrested, taken from his church as the pastor and elder, and incarcerated on the island of Patmos. So this is what they had to endure at the time. One historian says that nowhere was life more dangerous for a Christian than the city of Smyrna at this time. So that's why we call it the persecuted church. The persecuted church. So that's a little history about Smyrna. Uh, I want to look at the second part of verse 8. Jesus does this. He, he says, to the messenger of that church, take this news. And then he mentions the name of the city where that church exists. And then he always follows up by introducing an attribute or a characteristic that is true of himself as Lord of the church. And all the attributes are different as he goes through chapter 2 and 3. But the attribute that he chooses to highlight about himself is significant in terms of what's going on in that church. The church at Smyrna was they were suffering and enduring persecution from hostility, from unbelievers. And we're going to see even to the point of death, murder, martyrdom. So to encourage these saints, this persecuted church, Jesus refers to this attribute about Himself. He says in verse 8, the first and the last. I am the first and the last. That's significant. I said this in week one, that Revelation alludes to the book of, or the Old Testament over 400 times. It leaks of truth from the Old Testament. Revelation does. And this phrase, the first and the last, is taken right out of the Old Testament three times from Isaiah 41 and on, three times, God, the eternal God of the universe calls Himself the first and the last to His people Israel. Yahweh God. And it's in reference to the fact that He is the eternal, infinite God. Wow. Jesus takes that title of God and attributes it to Himself, to His church. This is amazing. Jesus is telling these persecuted Christians, some of which who will die... I am the first and the last, Lord Jesus of the church. I am the infinite and eternal one. 
find comfort in who I am. So that's the deity of Christ. He goes on, not only is the first and the last, the infinite and eternal one. He says, uh, but God also became a man. And so that's the second part of the reference about himself. I was dead. Can you imagine? God got killed. How is that possible? The Old Testament even says that God cannot die. Yet he says, I died. I am the infinite and eternal Yahweh of the Old Testament, and I was dead. And we know that he got crucified. Who did he get crucified by? He got crucified by Jews who resisted and rejected his truth that he was fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jews who were in religious leadership and had positions of authority. And they used the influence of Rome, the government, to have Jesus executed. That is the exact same people who were persecuting the people, the Christians at Smyrna. It was Jews under the influence of the government of Rome. Jesus could totally identify with these Christians. I, the eternal God, I was dead and yet I have come to life. I rose again from the dead. See, that's his encouragement. If you endure persecution, even if you die for me, be encouraged. I am the author of life. And he's going to offer them eternal life even if they die. So this is the church at Smyrna and these very encouraging words from the Lord Jesus himself. He is in charge, not just of the church, but of all things, all history, the world itself, even unbelievers. Jesus is in charge. So that's the destination. Let's go to point number two after the destination, and that is uh, the commendation. They're being commended or blessed because of their faithfulness. They were, they were faithful in a couple of different areas, verses 9 and 10, but it begins in verse 9, the, the commendation, and primarily enduring persecution. They had faithfully been standing under weighty persecution. And they've been doing it very faithfully. The end of verse 10, he says, be faithful in the English text. It literally in the Greek text means keep on being faithful. You are being faithful. Continue to do that. So Jesus is commending this church for their faithfulness. So look at verse 9, the commendation. Jesus says, I know your tribulation or affliction. I know your affliction or your tribulation, even your poverty... But you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. They were under tribulation. And you know what's comforting is Jesus knew that. He starts out in verse 9, I know. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows what's going on in the church. He knows what's going on in the world. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows what's going on in our mind. He is omniscient, the omniscient one. He says, I know what's going on. I, I know what's in your midst. Your, your prayers don't go unanswered or unheeded. I know your tribulation. This word for tribulation is very specific. Affliction from other people. Applying significant pressure down on the Spirit is the impact that it has. They, they were under duress in every conceivable way. I know your affliction. And then he goes on to explain what the tribulation was. The tribulation that they were enduring was twofold. There were two things. I know your tribulation even, and he tells us what the two things are. What ways was the, were the Christians at Smyrna suffering? The first one is their poverty. Their poverty. Unlike the church at Laodicea, we'll see. Unlike the church at Laodicea, we'll see in chapter 3, which is the very rich church, self-sufficient church, this church was just the opposite. These believers were in abject poverty. There are two common New Testament words for poverty. One is the common word that is not used here. It just means poor, without. The word being used specifically by John is talking about abject poverty. Created poverty deliberately by someone or something else or some unseen antagonistic force. That's the kind of poverty they were enduring. 
what was likely going on is because they were being persecuted by, we're going to see influential unbelieving Jews in the city of Smyrna who were informing the Romans, bad-mouthing the Christians, slandering their reputation, which had been going on for decades, by the way, to the point if you were a Christian, it was like you were branded in a negative way. And as a result, in that society, in that government, under the rule of the Jews and the Romans in the city of Smyrna, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't get anything. That's what they were living in. We saw that in Nazi Germany. Very similar. They were branded. The byproduct, as a result, over time, was abject poverty. Jesus knew that. He recognized that. But He says, you know what? Regarding your material possessions that you do not have, He reminds them, but you're rich. If you're a Christian, you are rich. You are spiritually rich. You have salvation in Christ. You have forgiveness of sin in this life and in the next life. You have the gift of prayer to talk to God immediately when you need help. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, your comforter and teacher. You have the Scriptures, the very Word of God. You have other believers to encourage you. You have hope in heaven beyond this life and the trials of this life. And that's what he meant by you are rich. So that's true of you, Christian, if you're going through something discouraging right now, suffering, maybe even persecution, maybe you're having a hardship in life, but you are a true believer. These words of Jesus apply to you as well as one of his children. You are rich, spiritually rich. What matters more? The temporary goods and things of this life or eternal riches in Christ Jesus? And that's one thing, one thing above all things that persecuted people need to hear. They need an eternal perspective, don't they? Somebody in this congregation was telling me after week one, they said that they had heard that persecuted churches around the world routinely when they are asked, what books do you cling to the most as persecuted believers? In the top two was Revelation. That might be surprising to some. Makes sense because it gives an eternal perspective. This life is not all there is. This pain will end and the mockery that goes with it. So Jesus knows. He identifies with them. Yes, they are poor, but they're rich in Christ. The second way that they were being persecuted, it went along hand in hand with this poverty they were experiencing, and that is the blasphemy that they were receiving. Verse 9. They were being blasphemed. Literally, they were being slandered. They were being mocked. Their reputation was being dragged in the mud because of their allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And we know this from history. We know this starting in the book of Acts and even in secular history. For the first three centuries, there was a pattern that quickly developed before the first century was over of how the Romans were spreading lies, as well as the Jews, to slander and mark Christians. And here are the top five lies about Christians just in the first two centuries of the church. They were falsely accused of cannibalism routinely. Why? Because they had communion. They celebrated communion. Supposedly eating the body of Jesus Christ in His blood. So unbelievers turned that on its ear and called it cannibalism, which was worthy of death. Uh, Another false rumor that Christians were accused of immorality, sexual immorality because they heard about these love feasts that Christians had. And Christians were encouraged by Paul to give one another a holy kiss. And that was also distorted. So Christians were labeled as being sexually immoral. They also gained a reputation quickly of dividing families. Because if you had a totally lost family, and then somebody in that family got saved, you had a divided family. Right? You had divided loyalties. 
your master was now God and Jesus. And Jesus promised that, didn't he? Matthew chapter 10. This is so pertinent because I want to read it. Um, So they gained a reputation of being, of dividing families, of being disgruntled, divisive, narrow-minded, can't get along with their own siblings and parents. But Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 34. He said, Do not think that I came came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Another translation says, I came to bring division. That's what Jesus said. He's talking about practically speaking, that would be the byproduct of His message. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? Well, I came to set a man against his father. A daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he's talking spiritually. One is a Christian, one is not. They have nothing in common at the deepest level of life. Therefore, there will be division. Verse 36, listen to this. Think about your own family and see if this is true of you and any of your siblings, your parents, your relatives. I've experienced this. Jesus was right. As a result of this division from the Gospel, verse 36, Jesus said, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And Christians were accused of destroying families. Another one that they were accused of was atheism. Why? Because they worshipped an invisible God. Well, where is this God that you worship? I don't see Him. Because the Romans, they had idols all over the place. Romans for every God they believed in. I mean, uh, idols for every God they believed in. And then finally, uh, they were slandered for being, uh, they were called politically disloyal to the, uh, the government in charge. Specifically because they would not say Caesar is Lord. They refused to say that. Sometimes the penalty of arrest, torture, and even death. We know that from Christians who have been killed. So they were called subversive, politically disloyal, undermining the government, which was not true because Paul gave Romans 13, obey, submit to the governing authorities. So anyway, so this is how Christians were typically mischaracterized and maligned. Are Christians mischaracterized and misrepresented today in America? Absolutely. Have you seen the television recently? Cable news? Whatever it is. From comedy shows that blatantly mock Christians in Christ. And for the last 30 years, anytime Hollywood wants to portray the Christian in their show, they're usually the hypocrite or hypercritical, totally unloving. Everything that Jesus wasn't, it's called a caricature. They're misrepresented. That goes on today. That is not humanly engineered. That is satanically inspired. Wow, you're getting radical, Pastor. No, I'm just reading verse 9. Look at it. Where did this ultimate blasphemy come from and slander? Well, it came from the Jews who were unbelieving. This isn't time to just pick on the Jews. This is a historical reality. There was a pocket of unbelieving Jews in Smyrna that hated the Christians, and they saw to it that they would inform on the Christians, the Romans, so that the Christians would be shut down, persecuted, and hopefully eradicated. That was the intent. We know that historically. Polycarp was one of the early church apostolic fathers who was born and raised and ministered in Smyrna. Faithful, pastor, elder. We even have some of his writings that exist today. He was arrested for being a Christian. He was arrested for being a pastor. He was beaten and eventually murdered by the Roman government because he refused to worship Caesar. And the people who spearheaded the arrest and the attack and brought the word to the wood to burn him at the stake were the hostile, unbelieving Jews from Smyrna. 
this same pocket of resistance. By the way, you can't pit Jews against Christians because the hateful Jews in the early first century and in the Bible and in the New Testament, who were they persecuting? They were persecuting Jews. The Apostle Paul was a Jew and he's being persecuted by fellow Jews who refused to believe in Paul's Jesus. So it's not an ethnic issue. It's a spiritual issue. So we don't become anti-Semitic as a result. The first church, the first 3,000 souls that Jesus saved were all believing Jews. The Jews are God's people. They still are in a special way according to Romans 9-11. through They have a future with God. But if they don't submit to Jesus Christ, they are under the wrath of God in the meantime. So that's who was persecuting uh, the Christians at Smyrna were these unbelieving. By the way, they were influential Jews. They were religious Jews. Interesting all throughout history. It's the religious people persecuting true believers, typically. And that last part is very important at the end of verse 9. It says, uh, actually, they're not Jews at all. They're not ethnic Israel the way God called them out as His people in the Old Testament. These are Jews who are Jews only in name by profession because they reject the truth of the Old Testament and they've rejected their own Messiah who came to fulfill the Old Testament. They are just religious people. And actually they are inspired by Satan himself and that's what it says. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Satan is real. You know what? You know how uh, Satan persecutes believers? He uses human beings to do it. He uses unbelievers who are simply pawns. Many times I don't even know they're a pawn of Satan. They're being used by Satan himself to persecute believers. And that's what was going on here. Satan has incredible authority. Not more authority than God, but he's got incredible authority granted to him by God. And he uses people. When bad things are happening to you as a Christian, don't ever for an instant think, well, I wonder why God is doing this to me. I wonder why God is punishing me. I wonder why God isn't blessing me. I wonder why this horrible thing... I wonder why God allowed... Your first thought should be as a Christian, wow, I wonder what Satan is up to. Remember who the enemy is, right? The devil is the destroyer. That's what Scripture says. He's a vicious, roaring lion, seeking to destroy whom he can. And he's first and foremost after Christians. So we've got to remember that. It's not, God, why are you doing this to me? It's, wow, I wonder what Satan's up to. And did I pray like Jesus told me to pray in Matthew 6 for protection against Satan? By the way, Jesus said pray every day for protection against Satan. Good reminder for our prayer life. When was the last time you specifically prayed to God, deliver me from the evil one, like Luke 11 says, which should be a daily prayer. Satan is on the prowl. I am reminded that routinely I pray for my own children. Protection from Satan. Dear God, spiritual protection, literally physical protection, health, everything. Hebrews says that the, the tool that Satan uses is death. It's his tool. It's his goal. We need to pray against Satan and his work on an individual basis and also corporately. So that is the commendation. They are commended for, being, for enduring this hostility, this persecution, for being faithful to the call of Christ. Let's go on to number three, the exhortation. Strong, encouraging words to continue in their faithfulness really is what this is. The exhortation from Jesus Himself. And what is the exhortation? It is courage in the face of death. They've been courageous. He just wants them to continue being courageous. Do not fear. Literally, stop fearing. Stop being afraid. Because the the pressure was mounting. They could see the handwriting on the wall that blood was coming. That was the pattern. So Jesus needs to calm them. Jesus knows what's going to happen to them. Jesus is all-powerful. He's the infinite God. It's interesting... We should take note of it. 
Jesus knows the persecution they are enduring. He knows their future, that they are subject to death. Yet Jesus, His promise to them in verse 10 isn't, I'm going to deliver you from it and everything's going to be fine and you're going to be happy. And peachy keen and roses. That is not Jesus' promise. He could have done that, but He didn't. In His sovereignty, knowing full well what was going to happen, Jesus allowed the persecution to happen in verse 10. And He says, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid of what you're about to suffer. Behold, take note, this is what's going to happen. If you think it's bad now, it's just going to get worse, says Jesus to these persecuted Christians. Well, what is it? Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Literally, the devil is about to keep on casting you some of you into prison. To keep on casting, more than one is going to be thrown into prison. They're going to go clean house. The devil, meaning the devil who is using humans who hate Christ to do his dirty work. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison, literally, in order that you may be tested or tried. They're going to, what they're going to try to do, the reason they're arresting you, they're going to put the knife to your throat and ask you to give it to recant of your profession in Christ and to speak up and say, Caesar is Lord. That's the test. So Jesus is telling them, don't give in. Don't give in to the test. Don't give in to the trial. Stop being afraid. He's about to cast some of you into prison and you will have tribulation for ten days. Ten days should be taken literally. There's no reason not to take it literally. Jesus said, I will raise in three days. He's saying you're going to be in prison for ten days. Historically, we know that this is what happened in Smyrna on a regular basis. By the time that Polycarp got murdered, he was called the twelfth martyr of Smyrna. There was a history. And then he says at the end of verse 10, be faithful, literally keep on being faithful. He's commending them for their faithfulness. You've been faithful. You have endured. You haven't abandoned Christ. You've held true to your faith even in the face of persecution and losing your job and your money and your house. Keep being faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death. Boy, could you say that as a Christian? I don't know if I could. We've got it so good here in America. America has experienced over 230 years of sheltering and shielding from religious persecution that the likes of which have never been known in human history. Do you realize that? Not going to last forever. So God has been good, very gracious to us. But the people at Smyrna, they had to do this until the point of death. And then Jesus says, I will give you the crown of life. Even if they kill you, I will give you the crown of life. What is the crown of life? Stephanos. The victory crown. All he's saying, I will give you eternal life. There are rewards in heaven for you. If they kill you in this life, that just catapults you into the glories of heaven with me, is what Jesus is saying. And when you get there, I will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, again, this eternal perspective we need. The Christians who are... Enduring, suffering, and persecution need an eternal perspective. Finally, number four, the invitation. At the end of every one of these letters, Jesus gives a universal call of an invitation to anybody who will hear. So he's, he's shouting with his megaphone beyond the city of Smyrna. It's to any Christian in that day who would hear in Asia Minor, any church in the then known world. And all the churches down through the corridors of history, Jesus is making this promise to. So that includes GBF today. This is a promise from Jesus to us by way of the 
Christians at Smyrna. So let's go ahead and look at what this promise is. Jesus says in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear with the Spirit. He who has an ear. Jesus said that repeatedly in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew chapter 11, verse 15, chapter 13, verse 9, and many other places. It was a general call to anybody that would listen. Anybody. This goes beyond Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.